Hi folks, it's Dave Lorenzo, and I wanna reintroduce you to my Inner Circle Business Development Community. That's right, the Inner Circle Business Development Community is the sponsor of the Inside BS Show. Now, you come here every day to listen to the insider secrets on running a business. You come here for the inside business strategy. If you want to really get down under the hood and figure out how to tinker with your business and make it more successful regardless of the external conditions. That's right, I'm talking about a pandemic or other market forces. You need to be a member of my inner circle business development community. Why? Well, there are three reasons. Number one, it's made up of people just like you who are looking to grow their businesses and they will share their best practices with you. We meet once a week and I extract, I pull it out of them and they share all of the best business secrets with the group. Now, they only share it with the people who are Inner Circle members, so you gotta come to the weekly meetings. The second reason to be a part of the Inner Circle business development community is because it expands your capability. We have members in Canada, we have members in Mexico, we have members in the UK, and we're onboarding our first member from Australia this week. We also have members in 35 of the 50 states of the United States, so if you want to expand your capability, if you wanted to work in California, but you didn't have an office there, you didn't know how to get started there, we have members there that can help you get up and running. This is like a fraternity or a sorority for people who are in professional services. The final reason I think it makes sense for you to get involved with my Inner Circle Business Development community is referrals. Now, I'm not talking about uh, you getting referrals every single day, but I'm talking about you giving to the group and the group will give back to you. That's what we're set up to do. If you want to find out more, go to joindavelorenzo.com. That's joindavelorenzo.com. You can fill out an application there to apply. And the reason I say apply is because we only admit one member per profession, per geography. So don't wait. Hurry up. Uh, ignore the fact that I just snorted into the mic and go to joindavelorenzo.com. We're waiting for you. We want you to be with us on the inside. All right, so today's Inside BS show is one that I've looked forward to for several weeks since I saw it on my calendar. My guest today is Mike Wittenstein, and he's an expert at strategy, change, experiential design, and story. IBM's former e-visionary, and he's going to let us know what that is, he advises leaders on how to make the next right move, how to fine tune their business models, and how to make the best of change. Since 2002, Mike's company, Story Miners, has served over 800 organizations from Fortune 100 companies to startups, and he provides game-changing yet practical ideas. He's basically, he's weaponizing strategy for his clients. He has earned designations such as CSP, DTM, MBA, blah, blah, blah. He's got, a, he's got a whole bunch of letters after his name, and he draws from his experience on stage and online. Now, look, I know he worked hard to get those designations, but the thing that's going to be most valuable for us is what he's got between his ears because his style is authentic, articulate, and sometimes funny, but it's always inspiring. He knows how to put himself in the listener's chair so he can speak directly to them, now to you and to me. And he's going to address not only our spoken questions, but our unspoken questions. Please join me in welcoming to the Inside BS Show, Mike Wittenstein. Dave, it's great to be here for the first time. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's wonderful for you to, to be here, wonderful for me to have you here. And the thing that resonates 
with me on your background. I mean, forget about your experience in building multiple professional service organizations. Um, you know, we, we share that in common. It's IBM. My father was a 40 plus year IBMer and my mother worked for IBM for 18 years. Uh, wow. We moved several times because back in back in the 70s and 80s, IBM stand, stood for I've been moved. It was then a computer company. Now it's a professional services company. Mm -hmm. So talk about what an e-visionary is and what you did at IBM as an e-visionary. Sure, absolutely. Well, I was there um, under Lou Gerstner when that change to professional services was happening. And by the way, before I was at IBM, I had a, uh, a digital agency. It was one of the first in the world, as a matter of fact. And anybody that opened a digital agency in the 90s was one of the first in the world. But IBM to us stood for I buy Macintosh. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, oh, uh, my goodness. Heresy. That's heresy. <laughs> I wasn't at IBM long enough to bleed blue, as they say. Blue is the color of the logo. But the, the term e-visionary was um, one that I coined myself. Um, they were very open-minded at the time. Uh, and they brought me in from this other world to be an entrepreneur inside the organization. So the e-visionary term had two meanings. E-business was an untrademarked, unpatented term that IBM rolled out into the world. And I later learned that they did that so that more people would adopt it. So I learned then that free equals fast. Mm. E-Visionary told their clients that there was somebody on staff that could tell them where the future was going to be so that they could arrive prepared. I don't know if that was really true or not. There mm. are people who are futurists. There are people who are you know, better than average predictors of what's going to happen. But nobody knows the future for sure. Right. Alan McKay said that you can invent the future. You can't predict it, but you can make it happen. So the e-visionary's job was to make things happen. So what we did is, uh, or what I did, along with a team that started at seven and ended up at a couple of thousand, was we started looking on IBM's cutting room floor for those little pieces of edited out video clips, those little pieces of offerings that nobody else saw value in because it wasn't going to be a billion dollar operation in six months. You know, they had very haughty, macho kind of goals back then. Mm. But we found a number of things that we thought were trending and we helped them to trend. Um, on the inside in eVisionary was the person who kind of collected those ideas, got people excited about being a part of something new and different, brought shape to the very first engagements, sold them to clients, and then once we proved something could work, we passed it back over the cubicle wall to the others at IBM to kind of scale it up. So in that fashion, I started three practices. Now, practices, you know, by IBM's definition is like this. My definition was teeny tiny. We got a couple of engagements under each one. We put a team together, uh, and that's how we went going forward. So uh, it was absolutely a blast to be an entrepreneur in mm. A, a stodgy, turning, agile organization at the time taught me a lot. Yeah. So, explain to us how you, so you, you take a culture like IBM's, and um, you're you're coming in from a more nimble environment, and how do you get them to react with the same sense of urgency? So, you know, you. 
for for them, you probably could see the future because the things that you had done previously were very futuristic to them because they can't they couldn't move as fast as you could move when you're when you're in an agency, you know, that mm -hmm. that that you're and you have resources, but yet you still have a very quick, agile team. Right. Yeah. So yeah. how do you how do you how do you influence the culture? to get them to, and I run into this with my clients and my clients run into this with their clients. How do you, how do you convince people that, look, we got to go and we got to go now. We can't wait. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is a huge question. I, I could go on for hours about that, but I promise I won't. <laughs> um, the first part of that question is how do you know? Some people process by looking for evidence. Others look by processing for numbers. Others look for kind of a gut feel. That's where the real estate people and the poker players come in. You've got to be able to appeal to all those different types when you're doing something that's new. Mm -hmm. Most everybody wants to know what's in it for them and what's in it for us. The what's in it for them people and the what's in it for us people are just like our politicians today. They make decisions based on what their constituents want, but they want to stay elected. So they want to stay in power. They want to do what's going to help them stay on the gravy train, so to speak. And at IBM, a lot of gravy trains, a lot of commissions, a lot of outcomes oriented measures and things like that. So here's what I learned and what we've applied to story miners in the recent um, and just really in the recent few years. When you can't show somebody that something has already been done, when you can't bring them the best practice and the proof points, you have to bring them an incredibly compelling vision. Much like what a startup does, they'll build a proof of concept and they'll get letters of intent. The mm -hmm. IBM version of that is give me a really good project plan, show me how many hours it's going to take to get it done because that means revenue or cost. And mm -hmm. um, let me know that our clients are really interested in that. Unfortunately, a lot of times large companies constrain the resources needed to do that, which drives a lot of the innovation underground. The good thing about that is more innovation happens because people are just, you know, if I can say this on radio, so to speak, they're pissed off. They don't mm -hmm. like being so constrained, especially when they're brought into an organization to, to do really cool new things and they, they like the idea of moving things forward. So um, if you are kind of pushing against the grain, what we found and what we're doing right now at Story Miners is to focus in on that prototype. And when you're doing a product, you have to make a version of it, retool your dies, make a new one, or redo your 3D model and do another one and do another one. And it gets expensive. It's not as expensive as it used to be, but it still takes weeks and months to get a design right. People mm -hmm. don't have that long to wait. Just like pharmaceutical companies, they've got all these different compounds to invest in and they want to find the ones that don't work faster than the ones that do because then they can focus their investment. So there was a little bit of that kind of thinking going on inside the company. So um, what I did at IBM to find these extra little pockets and to make things go was one, I got very lucky. I found a guy named Neil Isford who at the time was, I, I think, a several clicks above me, I don't remember what his title was, but he commandeered or he commanded the discretionary budget for creating new things within my little department of IBM Global Services. Mm. He sat down at lunch with me one day, didn't know who I was, I had no idea who he was. Six months later, we had a quarter million dollars of internal investment to develop a concept called Adaptive Enterprise. 
Do you know what agile is? You know what object-oriented code is? It's the same thing for building an organization to be nimble on demand. So that was the first thing that happened to me that I thought was amazing. Um, mm. Inside of these skunk works, all kinds of other cool things happen. One of the things that we built was, um, we called it an innovation accelerator, and anybody can make one of these. It's basically you know, your own skunk works. But in that innovation accelerator, we let all the execs know that this is where we're gonna build the parts of IBM that don't exist yet. We'd come up with an idea for something and they'd say, oh, we can't do that because we don't have this part that we need. You know, uh, mm -hmm. such and such kind of a workshop or such and such kind of a reporting tool or a dashboard or something like that. So we created a place, a little foundry inside of the company where we could make the missing parts. And that made the excuses just disappear. Kind of interesting. Um, I can go on, but let me take a break. Where, where, where's, your, where's your head going next? Well, so I'm, I'm kind of curious as to, you know, this is what, what you're describing would be a daunting task for anyone in any environment, having, having been exposed to the internal politics of IBM over the years, how, you know, how did you manage that? And I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking to themselves, this is a, a massive company. So, mm -hmm. you know, how did you how did you handle, you know, 16 people are threatened by the three ideas you just gave me? Like, how do you how do you navigate through the shark infested waters to actually make things happen? You find your own waters. Have you heard of a book called Blue Ocean Strategy? Of course. Yeah. All right. So you find the blue ocean. You go where people don't mm -hmm. care and you swim a little mm -hmm. solo. That was the smartest way. So. Uh, one of the things that we did in the, um, which let's see, I think it was in the, the travel vertical, we created um, a live reenactment of um, a new guest encounter. So the idea was to go to deskless check-in. What would that be like? Well, we brought in mm -hmm. actors and we staged it. We used cardboard boxes. We slapped the laptop on a little table, put it in front of the pylon looking, you know, cardboard box thing wrapped in craft paper. We explained what was going on with the director. People were watching the interaction. They had to imagine, which people love to do. They love to imagine. Even accountants like to imagine. An mm -hmm. actress would walk up to the kiosk. She'd push a button or two. On a different computer, we'd show them what was actually going on. Sometimes we moved paper cutouts on the board and took a series of still pictures. People kind of got what we were talking about in the context of a customer's, or in this case, a hotel guest's experience. And mm -hmm. once that worked, they go, oh my gosh, this actually has some idea, some, some value. I'm glad I thought of it. And that's when you swallow your pride, you know, and you <laughs> just kind of let people have their own buy-in wherever it needs to be. So we turned that into a video. Uh, the first one we did was for Wingate Inns. It got done a bunch of times after that in the travel department, um, travel and tourism, whatever they call it now. and. Um, that video actually um, took two weeks to create and it brought another million dollars to the bottom line for the client, not for IBM, the mm. client. And what happened is the video was so compelling that the franchisees coughed up a little bit of extra money um, to get all those ideas implemented. So we did an end run around the folks who said, can't be done, we don't have that, we didn't pitch that, they didn't even know, but the CEO was super happy the press picked it up. They they opened six months earlier than they thought they would have, and they had more tech in the room, and it worked better. The yeah. cool thing about a prototype, and this is like the center point of this whole part of the conversation, is that using actors or using pen and paper or keyboard, 
uh, to create a story or a little experience is the fastest, most agile and cheapest prototyping material you have for big ideas. So the, the, the bottom line is act out big ideas and everyone can like look at them, see how they feel, wrap their heads around them, ask questions. And the magic, Dave, is that instead of resistance, people start asking questions, then they start seeing themselves in it, then they start offering suggestions and you've got buy-in. All because of story. Yeah, no, that's I, I that's really interesting. That's a great uh, it's a great illustration of how that works. And I think one of the most valuable things you hit on there, and this is consulting 101, is that the best ideas are the client's ideas. And as mm -hmm. long as the check clears, uh, I don't care who gets credit. Right. So that's if you're if you're listening today and you just adopt that mindset you're going to be further along this year than than you have been probably in the last 10 because I work with professionals all day long who whose ego gets bruised when they, they get concerned that the client is taking credit for their ideas. The bottom line is it, it doesn't matter. At the, your job is to make the client successful. So if they think they did it themselves, all the more reason for them to hire you next time because every time they hire you, you look smarter and smarter. Yeah, let's, so, pull, that, let's pull that back just a hair. There's sure. a difference between giving the client all the credit and giving them the, the opportunity to make a discovery that puts themselves into the story. And that's what you're looking to do with all different kinds of people. So it's not just one person's idea. Everybody needs to see that they've made a contribution and that they're the hero in the story. That's absolutely the, the essence of the whole thing. When everyone sees themselves in the story, they can try it on for size before they pay for it and they get much more comfortable. When people try something on for size, they can feel it, they can touch it, they can smell it, they can move around in it. You know, I'm using clothes as a metaphor right now, but mm. they get that sense of this is gonna work, this is gonna fit, I'm gonna look good, my people are gonna like this, I won't be embarrassed. This will carry us forward. And it's all those intangible things that you can't measure that are given a chance to um, to work for somebody. So just leave room for them to be part of the solution and you're good. Yeah. So bridge the gap for us between, uh, you know, help fix the skinny mirrors in the store uh, idea, right? So bridge the gap for us between seeing it and buying into it and then the execution because that's where that's where strategy shops always end up falling short. Having well, I, having you, been you know, having been a part of a strategy shop and collecting my fee and got, going away and then coming back two years later to find everything still in the exact same place that they left it in, you know, it, it just that's the kind of thing that would drive me nuts. So how do we bridge the gap between strategy and execution? That is dead on right. I can't. I'm so glad that you had that experience. So listeners don't have to go through that as well. Um, there are a couple things that you have to do from a leader's perspective. If you're the agent of change. It's, it's often said that for every hour you spend working on the future, you need to spend an hour communicating about the future. So as a leader, your job is to set a really specific target, take accountability for creating that vivid picture of how the future is going to work, and then keep telling it over and over and over. If you've got an organization of thousands like IBM, how many times do you think they need to tell the story of whatever it is that's new? What do you think? Five yeah, times from the CEO's office, 20 times. I, I was going to say a couple of hundred. I mean, well, it, it's more like tens of thousands of conversations yeah. every month for a year. 
That's the scale yeah. of change. So you're basically seeding all these really important stories to make them happen. So how do you go from strategy to like implementation, I'll say to adoption, because that's what we're really shooting for. From a designer standpoint, you start with adoption in mind, which means you have to understand your target audiences, plural, the whole ecosystem, and make sure that you're answering the questions that most people and most thinking styles are gonna have as you go along. So what we typically do, and it's not the same every time, is I look for really bright, articulate, emotionally accurate, other-oriented people from the client's organization who've been with them a short to a long amount of time and who cover several of the key disciplines. That's mm -hmm. all I need to know about them. I don't need an engineer or a dentist or a secretary or the company leader. I just need that range of opinions. And we put them kind of into a sortition. A sortition is a like a, a mirror group of people that you'd find in the real world, if that makes sense. So just take the luck of the draw. And it's mm -hmm. through these really interesting design charrettes and conversations that some of the most interesting opposite or angular perspectives come out and you work with that creative tension because if you don't have any tension you don't get anything good out of it and right. you start as you're talking you, you you're addressing the um the needs of the client so at the end of the day what is it that creates value for client you bring this group in and you start talking about how are we doing it today what could we be doing in the future? So the thinking starts to expand. Usually, the next round of conversation is with the analysts, the bean counters, the naysayers, the devil's advocates who come in and say, you know, you can't do that because around here, that's always blue. It can never be red. Or we've never done anything below 49, only above 49. So you, mm -hmm. then you dig in and you find out why. And it turns out that those are the things in the organization that typically need to change, not just for your idea to work, but for any idea to work. We go back to management or to whomever our sponsor is and we say, hey, which of these things would you like to tackle? If you tackle this one, it might lead you here. If you tackle that one, it might lead you over there. And they give us a little bit of air cover because they start to see that they've been looking at the world through blind, with their blinders on. The things that they value the most that got them to today are the things that are holding them back from going in a different direction or from going forward. So there, when you focus on adoption, there are two kinds of conversations that you need to have at the same time. And you just need to be a good facilitator. When you start, you're going to screw up, take ownership of it. You might get fired once or twice, but you're going to get good at it over time. Very few people don't get better. So the two conversations that you need to have are about the ideas and about the stories that introduce those ideas. Most people are very quick to judge. And um, Daniel Kahneman and who's the guy that wrote Blink? Malcolm Gladwell. Gladwell they both yeah. landed on this notion of our brains are, boom, rapid fire. They're so quick to figure things out. So you've got to unpack the way people are judging you. That's what people do with A-B testing and social media. It's no, no different. We're trying to figure out how everybody else's brain works when you hit them with something new. So you've got to get the ideas working and the stories about the ideas. So we use at StoryMiners a sequence of different combinations of people. You know, that first one is usually sponsor level. The next one is give me that swath, you know, age and different positions around the organization. The third one is give me the positives give me the negative people around that to evaluate those ideas. 
Go back to the positive people to figure out how to make that happen. Go back to the negative people, but a little bit larger each time. And that actually starts a little bit of a grapevine inside of the company. So people start talking about your idea and it's then that it lives or dies. It's just like when a bill goes to committee. It's either alive or dead in committee. It doesn't really matter if it makes it out to the floor. Most of the bills live and die right there. So it's the same kind of political process. The smarter facilitators, you know, the ones that I've enjoyed working with the most are the ones that can like they have an idea like this. It's a great idea. And they find out that nobody likes it and they just crumple it up and they throw it away and they start fresh and they can come out with something even better. If you get too mm -hmm. tied to your own idea, you're screwed. If you stay too tied to your sponsor's idea, they're screwed. The trick is to listen intently to the market and make sure that you're doing one thing. And the one thing that works every, every single time is to create more value for the client. If you focus not on your client, but on their customer, not on the person who writes you a check, but who writes them a check, that's the aligning magic that lets everybody start pulling in the same direction. It's a lot easier to pull a rope than to push one. Mm -hmm. So let me, uh, let's talk a little bit about something that, uh, something that you said, cause you described, um, you know, the, my palms are sweating when you're decide when you're, when you're describing the different levels of buy-in and so, uh, you know, my, my perspective on that and you, you shared the, um, the kind of the quote unquote self check-in or uh, check-in experience at Wingate. I was I was at Marriott in the late 80s and Mr. Marriott, I guess, had uh, had gone to a conference and told all the GMs, hey, listen, I just went and rented a car from Hertz and I saw my name on a on a board. It gave me a slot. I went to the slot. My car was there. I got in the car and drove away. I want check-in to be just like that. So my boss at the time was the general manager of the hotel, and he came back and he said, Marriott's going to roll out this, this process in about a year. They're, you know, they're beta testing it now at a bunch of hotels. And he said this at a staff meeting with all the managers. Here's what I want. Next week, I want you to cut a hole in the desk. And I want there to be a big hole in the front desk, and I want there to be a rack out in front of the front desk, and I want you guys standing out there checking people in and you know as somebody who uh you know who is uh, uh you know in the rooms division at the time i'm like all right well we're gonna cut a hole in the desk and we're gonna start checking people in by the time they rolled out that process our hotel was the model hotel for this self-check-in process not because awesome. we went through 15 levels of approval but because the guy cut a hole in the desk the next week and Mr. Marriott came to visit about six months in and he's got 15 people around them, all of them taking notes. And he's like, this is exactly what I was talking about. Why can't you guys make this happen everywhere? And, you know, it was as simple as the guy cutting a hole in the freaking desk. And, you know, we figured everything else out as we went along. Now, I'll tell you that six months was a nightmare. You know, double checking people into rooms and guests wandering into the back office through the hole in the desk in the middle of the night because there was nobody out there. And yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, so that six months for us who were we were people on the front lines was a disaster, but it made the careers of everyone who was involved and all because our general manager was at that conference and he came back and told the engineering department to cut a hole in the front desk. So 
how do we, I'm going to go back to bridging the gap again, because now having worked in big companies, now I'm an entrepreneur. And I know if I wait for everybody at the client organization to get buy-in, two things are going to happen. That's going to die and I'm going to get fired. So I got to go in there and I got to set somebody's world on fire to get them to take action today. They got to, you know, this is a great idea. The boss knows it's a great idea because his customers are telling him he's got to get his people to move. Right. So does does that mean he's got to get new people or, you know, because sometimes you just got to cut a hole in the desk. How does that how does it work? How do you so you coming in from the outside, how do you get people fired up and tell them, look, time is of the essence here. You're not going to be Marriott wasn't the first to do that. They were the mm-hmm. I, I, I would argue they were the first to do it really well. So now if you go stay at a courtyard, you can walk around that little kiosk where people are checking you in. Mm-hmm. You go to a Ritz Carlton, they're sitting at a desk in the lobby. You sit across from somebody when mm-hmm. they check you in or the guy meets you at the door with your key. Yeah. How do you get people to go with the idea? rather than have 15 committees. I mean, you're working with big companies now. Yeah, if they yeah. do that process, it's going to take okay. them forever. Somebody's going to be faster. Well, what a great question. love that question. Thank you, Dave. Um, I used to work down here at IBM in the, in the bowels of the organization, working with lots of groups and spending a lot of my time being Henry Kissinger, trying to get everybody to mm-hmm. get on the same page. Then I started working with design teams and tier two and tier three managers who had budget authority and outcome responsibility for making big things happen. Now we've moved like all the way up right to the leader. And here's what I think. The world is different today than it was when you were at Marriott and I was at IBM because there's so much change. This COVID pandemic, um, everything that's going on with changes in our political systems across the world, the connection that people have with each other and the speed at which all of us learn has stripped apart so many of the relationships and interdependencies of the past. So what does that mean? Going forward, when a leader says, I want this to happen, they're usually talking about outcomes. Give me an increase Mm -hmm. in ROI, an increase in sales, a decrease in expense, cut my inventory or increase my terms or whatever it is. The challenge is that you can't get new results with old ways because that's no longer the value that customers are seeking. They want something intrinsically different. So that circus barker of a CEO who says, darn it, give me more, get, you know, and that they're real compelling football mentality, silverback gorilla, macho male kind of thing. The problem with that is they're just stirring things up. It used to be inspiring. But now it just wastes a lot of time because they're not giving the instruction, in my opinion, that their downstream folks need. The downstream folks need, how do I set a new context? How do I introduce new rules? What are the new capabilities that are going to create value for my clients? And how are we going to squeeze profit after that? The old thinking is let's make our money first and then we'll work. The new way is we have to figure out a new way to create value for our clients and secondarily figure out how to make money for us. The end of the day, the best thinking is design thinking, in my opinion, because it lets everyone's needs rise to the top. So the company can be the best at what its customers want most, the employees can be engaged, and the shareholders can get a fair return. But the days of shareholder primacy in a world that's changing are numbered because it's just not the best strategy. It only advantages a few folks. 
So let's take your, can I take a break or do you want to go back to the beginning? No, 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 go, go, All right. go for it. So in my opinion, it's now the leader's responsibility, just like Marriott did, just like Macy did, just like Disney did, just like Jobs did, just like Musk does. They come in and they say, you know what? Things need to change. And I think our new world vision is this. And they say it very specifically. And I want a product that does this. And they say it very specifically. Or Disney goes on the Jungle Cruise as it's getting built. And he, he walks around and he, and he gives people advice on how to tell the jokes better. Or wow. um, a friend of mine, Lou Carbone, that taught me a lot about customer experience design, reported to me how Disney was at a, a baseball game and Pluto was gonna go out and do the first pitch. So Disney walks over to Pluto and says, hey there. And, and the person just looks at him because you're not supposed to talk. And so he said, it's okay, you can talk to me. I'm Walt Disney. He goes, what are you gonna do when you go out there? Well, Mr. Disney, I'm gonna throw the, I'm gonna throw the pitch to the batter. No, you're not. You're gonna drop the ball. Huh? Yeah, drop it and then don't pick it up. Kick it with those big shoes that you have on. Don't throw the pitch across the plate no matter what you do, he said. All right, now doesn't that feel like Pluto? That's, yeah, that's Pluto. sweating yeah. the details. It's now the leader's job to provide that kind of context, clarity, vivid understanding, and detail for everyone to say, oh, this is the new North Star. This is where we have to go. So what we're doing at Story Miners, a little, not to be promotional here, but the way no, that we're seeing this works yeah. is we you know, get real close with the executives or whoever the ideators are, and we help turn their strategy into an experience. And then we introduce it as a story so that people can see their part in it. They can see where they get to go. How does the balance of power affect me? What am I going to do in the morning? Am I still going to work with my friend Fred or Sally over here? Am I going to mm. need to learn new tools? Will the company support me? Those are all the things that are going on in people's heads. So when you use design, you can surface those needs more quickly and come up with an approach that just is super suitable for everyone. It's not always perfect and not everybody finds their happy place. Sometimes there's a little bit of moving going on, but if mm. you want speed, value and better outcomes, storytelling as a prototyping medium is absolutely amazing. Okay. So you're, so the, the, the leader sees himself in the story. Okay. And that's great. Or herself, he buys yes. Herself, I'm sure, <laughs> herself right? Uh, they, they buy into the story. And then there are 50 people who, uh, who have to make that story a reality. How, wh what happens when the story is different for them? And then what happens if the story is completely different for the client? Do you, do you first approach this from the client's perspective and show the Brilliant, leader, yeah. here's, here's the client's perspective of the story and here's where you fit in? And oh, by the way, Mr. You know, execution person, you know, here's where you fit in. And then what happens if they didn't give you the whole picture and somebody's missing from the story and you didn't identify that? Do you go back and redo the story so that you place the people who are missing in it? How does that work? Okay, um, I'm gonna draw a parallel to uh, coding. And what I just heard you say was, you know, it's kind of like COBOL. All the code has to work together in one big long string. In my head, I see it more like object-oriented code. So once you get a little module right, you can plug it, play it with a different module. So no, you don't have to go back and rework everything. Okay. There's a, a real common principle in design, which in my opinion is the world's greatest way to solve problems, 
which is you design from the outside in, but you build from the inside out. Mm -hmm. Architects have done that, like I am pay. Uh, talked about uh, a building is not the structure itself, it's the space it creates on the inside. Make, it kind of makes sense. That's what you're using is the space. You're not right. using the actual walls unless sure. you're Spider-Man. So the, um, the notion is to understand your constituents, multiple constituents, their needs and how you're going to deliver value and bring that back into the core of the organization. So the entire design team is steeped in understanding what those are. They're deliverables that can be created by talented folks, you know, creatives, writers, uh, strategists that kind of give you the picture of a persona, that give you an agile business design, that give you a clear, you know, um, lane for your, for your brand and your culture to run, that can give you a unique reason for being that is designed on purpose to create value for your clients. And it tells people, you know, where, where are the lanes on the road? You know, where's the paint? So you don't hit the oncoming traffic. All those things mm -hmm. are deliverables that come out of a combination of planting your flag and saying, this is where we want to go because companies do have a say and what their clients want. You've got to be able to create value for them. The part that's most important and a lot of people forget is that you start designing with other people from the very first day. There is no exec first and everybody else later. It doesn't go through the hierarchy. It's more of a, an amoebic thing where you bring in resources and you, you remember we talked about um, the grapevine before. So mm -hmm. you start off with some ideas and you can test multiple ideas at the same time. Usually in a large company, no single person can understand all the machinations of a big change like let's cut through the counter at the hotel. You've mm -hmm. got OSHA requirements, electrical, how are we going to do you know, wireless versus wired for point of sale terminals. You know, what about wireless check-in that's probably being worked on at the same time? How are we going to take care of cash control, housekeeping? All these things come into play. So you need that multidisciplinary team thinking positively about the future and you need their input so that they can make it work for them. When the Ritz-Carlton rolled out digital, they started with maid service. And they worked with some of the housekeeping staff to figure out what do you need this app to do for you? So they mm -hmm. made sure that, yeah, it made it so that nobody walked in on an uninterrupted guest. They figured out who was in and out of their room so they could properly route, you know, the housekeeping people. They minimized the number of towels and even service requests because they could go in when the room was empty and do predictive maintenance, if you will. So there are lots of benefits to the brand and to operations, but it was also a great boon for the, the guests, all based on input from housekeeping. Mm -hmm. So just like Marriott came in and said, I want this, I you know, cut this hole, do this. That was mm -hmm. his brilliant streak. But he was just one guy and he mm -hmm. happened to own the company so he got to have his way. But when you're when you're doing design thinking work, lots of people get to do that work. And for some, it's just a ton of fun. And they bring their friends and they start working on it together. You have to get better at the idea itself and the story that introduces the idea. But we're going from months to hours. That's the mm. difference. Okay. I, I, one of the things that you said, um, I think you hit on something that is going to resonate with the audience, and that's the, the concept of, hey, listen, here's what our mission is, and we're going to do X to fulfill our mission. There, I just I just listened to uh, this, this past weekend. I just listened to an interview with Elon Musk, and he said – um, hey, you know, uh, the, the interviewer asked him, hey, are you ever going to, you know, you're doing rockets now and you're doing cars. You're ever going to do a plane? 
And he said, uh, probably not. And he said, here's and here's the reason why he said we did. You know, the reason that we uh, got to Tesla, the reason that we came to uh, building cars is because we wanted to figure out the fastest way to have the biggest influence over the carbon footprint, because if we don't do this, the earth will end. He's like, there's no there's no two ways about it. Someone has to figure out how to reduce carbon emissions. So I sat with my team and I said, how can we have the biggest impact? And they said, well, right now, cars all over the world are, you know, just absolutely crushing the environment. So if you came up with a way to reduce carbon emission for from cars, you could do this. And he said, fantastic. We're going to build cars that don't uh, add to the the carbon footprint of uh, that, that don't have an impact on on. Uh, on the ozone mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that's where Tesla came to be he said you know the that's where I can have my greatest impact that's where you know continuing to refine this he said so we did cars and then now we're moving to SUVs because SUVs are incredibly popular we have a couple of semis that are electric that deliver stuff back and forth from our facilities we will then move into uh, interstate and local uh, you know, moving around interstate and local goods because that's uh, and that's how we're going to have this impact. Yeah. He said, I can't have that impact by creating planes. He yeah. said, now what I can do as an alternative is I can create rockets and help uh, foster a civilization on another planet in case we don't do this other thing fast enough. So the rockets <laughs> and the cars fulfill my mission, yeah. he said, but yeah. planes at this point don't fit. So, yeah. and um, you know, and I thought that was great. I thought I thought to myself, man, we should all design our businesses around what our mission is. If we did, we would never lose our way. I, I mean, I think I hear a lot of that in what you're saying about this. Yeah, we call that a reason for being. I learned that from Stephen Heckel at IBM. It's um, a statement that's got three parts to it. Very different than mission or vision, which are usually done with not enough time and too much liquor around, you know, because they're right. just like checkbox yeah. things that people do. They're not so mm -hmm. good. But a reason for being is based on systems thinking, design thinking, and it does three things. It tells you who your customer is, and by definition, who it's not. It tells you what value you create for them every day without batting an eyelash. It's what you optimize for. It's the number one thing that you do. And if you stop doing that, you've, you've broken your rule and you don't deserve to be in business. But that's how you stay mm. in business. The third thing it does is it names the client's use of what you do for them in their own value creation system. So it's kind of an open loop thing. It's not hierarchical, similar to Clayton Christensen's jobs to be done. It's all about taking a customer request and lining up all of the capabilities in your business behind that request. And the example that you just gave with um, Elon Musk has been done so many times. You know, with Disney and Ford and Jobs and Iacocca and everybody else, these leaders have a a very tight vision. They usually don't telegraph or communicate it to the public as much as they could have. It, I think it's been secret sauce for so long. But those that have a driving principle have an advantage over everybody else. And that is that when there isn't process or when there's a lack of information or when somebody just notices something is wrong, they naturally know the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that, that together with a set of principles, with understanding the emotional signature of your brand, 
with documenting what the accountabilities in the organization are one to another. We call it a promise map, roles and accountabilities design, jobs to be done, every kind of mm -hmm. matrix, and an experience design that shows what your business is supposed to be delivering to your client experience, to your employee experience, is the core of the brand and the story is the icing on the cake. But that, that definitely works. Those reasons for being are hard won. They take a lot of effort, but when you think them out the right way, they're golden. Absolutely. All right. So what's StoryMiner's reason for being? What is, you know, why, what, do you, what do you do to help? Uh, what, what are you looking to accomplish? You know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when you look back on StoryMiner's, you're going you're gonna to say to me, this is exactly what I thought it was going to be. So articulate that going forward now. Sure. What is StoryMiner's reason for being? Sure. Um, I want to tell you my personal reason for being because it's okay. And over the years, it's like really starting to dovetail. And that's I'm finding I'm happier right now, believe it or not. So the personal reason for being was to find patterns that lead friends and family to success in life and work, you know, in just enjoyment to create greater joy for them. Mm -hmm. That sounds a little Californian, a little crunchy, but joy is one of the magnet emotions that we all try to draw ourselves to. You might define it as a different word than joy, but there's something about that unexpected feeling of this feels really good. I'm happy I'm here. I appreciate my effort. So does everybody else. However you define it, joy is a real draw for us. Um, so the one of the, one of the gifts that I have and why I built that reason for being for myself was I'm good at finding patterns that other people don't see so readily. Mm -hmm. So at StoryMiners, what we're doing is we're teaming up with leaders um, to help them create such a vivid picture of the future for their constituents, their employees, whatever, that people want to pitch in and make it real even before they finish telling the story. Right. So that's how we language it. The reason for being behind it is, you know, who is our client? Well, it's um, collaboratively minded, emotionally mature. Um, Emotion, uh, open-minded leaders, okay? Now, you, we usually pick a certain size when we're doing our marketing, but leader is a leader. It's someone with responsibility for what's happening in the future, and they are good stewards of their organization, its resources, and their people. If they're optimizers, if they are mean, if they are illegal, we just don't work with those folks that well. Our methods are not well-suited to create those kinds of outcomes. Hmm. What's the value that we create? It's really about faster adoption that lasts a long time. So it's sustainable adoption is what we're doing. Sometimes we language that as um, achieving an, you know, an increased and sustainable competitive advantage, but it's really about the adoption of the ideas so that they can grow and deliver more value for their customers and so on. You know, for everyone, it's a little bit different, but that's kind of how we're wired. We are catalysts for leaders so that they can get onto that new track and be successful with it, taking their clients and their employees along the way. And that's very basic stuff. I know it's a little squishy. It's not like 87% of this and conquer the market east of the Mississippi and north of Alabama. It's whatever Alabama is. Um, it's a little vaguer than that, but that's a filter for us to know that we're on the right track and that we're delivering the right kind of value. We're also working on new language for it right now. We launched StoryMiners 3.0 at the beginning of last year, and you can see our reason for being right on the website. Just go to storyminers.com, right to the bottom, it says DNA, 
you know, uh, and we've published, you know, how we're working. We're working on a new version. We'll probably launch that in the April time frame to represent what you just heard today. Okay, fantastic. So you've got uh, you've got a, an area of your website where people can go and ask questions and oh, yeah. I'm going to put it I'm going to put it in the show notes and it's really uh, it's storyminers.com s c o r y m i n e r s.com forward slash yama y a m a uh, you ask Mike answers is what that stands for storyminers.com forward slash y a m a what kinds of stuff do, do people ask there? Do you ever get a you ever get a ridiculous question like, "Hey, Mike, what uh, you know, where where'd you get that shirt?" I mean, what what kinds of questions do people ask you? What what kinds of questions are you looking for on there? Well, the reason we put that out there is because uh, Dear Abby did such a good job of kind of figuring out where was the American psyche in the '50s, '60s, and '70s. She had a syndicated column, so she would take private questions and share public answers. And mm. I'm finding it very frustrating to use SEO and answer the public and a whole bunch of other tools to kind of figure out where people are leaning next. Most of these tools are set up to tell you where people have been. They'll tell you what was trending, but not what's coming next. So in order to figure that out, because I'm working with always, always with leaders who are trying to figure out their futures for themselves, their businesses, their clients, their employees, I need to know what they're thinking about today. And that's why we put that up there. So the kinds of questions we're getting are very generic things like what should we do post COVID with regard to employee communications um, to mm. very, very specific things like um, we're doing a subscription model for books. Uh, what are the best offers we should make? Mm, you know? So it goes all over the place. Um, over time, what we're doing with the instructions and the little startup video, it was a little video on there and it, it's me talking and it says, you know, here's what to do A, B and C. Mm -hmm. And you can push a, a text button, an audio button, or a video button to leave your answer. But we're mm -hmm. continuously tightening that up as we learn more about what our own lane needs to be and what people are responding to. So every few weeks, there's a new video, there's some new instructions, and we're getting tighter. What we're looking for more often than not is what are you struggling with around what's next? What do you trust? What are you struggling are with? You doing, what are you struggling with? But it's, it's more about, are you prototyping? Do you believe in that? Are you starting your adoption soon enough? How do I motivate my teams? How do I encourage the support for this? How do I flesh out my ideas so people understand them? Those are the kind of questions that I'm kind of steering toward because I think that's where our lane is going forward. But only my customers know. I'm not sure yet because, you know, we work for them, not for us. Yeah. So talk a little bit about uh, in the in the few minutes that we have left, talk a little bit about how you've had to adjust and how your company has adjusted since March 13th, 2020. Um, you know, I tell I've told the story on the show before March 13th, 2020, my wife and I were uh, driving from uh, the outskirts of, of Miami where we live into downtown Miami for an appointment. And we heard that, that there was going to be two weeks to stop the spread, right? That uh, that we that schools were going to be shut down and they were going to ask local businesses to shut down for two weeks to stop the spread. And I turned to my wife and I said, this doesn't sound good. I, I said, when, as soon as we finish here, I got to go back and call my clients and see if, if they're if they're thinking the same thing I'm thinking, because, you know, from the data and and the uh, and the, the way that the virus was spreading, I didn't know that I didn't see how two weeks was going to even put a dent in it. Um, so I had to adjust. I changed my whole business model in the next six weeks. And that's the business model that we've been operating under ever since. What have you done as people who help 
other people do this sort of thing. What have you done to make adjustments in your business since since that time period? Well, what a what a really good question. I don't know if we've done everything as well as we could have, honestly speaking, but we've uh, created uh, a, an entirely new suite of offerings. Same outcome, different delivery approach. We've switched out about 60% of the technology that we use. For example, mm. in the You Ask Mike Answers thing at storyminers.com slash Y-A-M-A, we're mm. using a new technology called Video Ask. It's made by the people at Typeform, and it allows us to create trust funnels using our faces. Um, it's a really fun way to engage with folks. And what we're finding is that people are willing to ask a question because they want to get something for it. They want an answer. That mm. mentality around give me something before, well, let me get something before I give you something, that's been mm. known for 30, 40 years, or at least sure. in the online world. Um, but what we, and to put it into, I guess, context, um, we, we reacted first, you know, much like it, I got to call all my clients. And then we started to respond, you know, and reach out to clients. We just try to do them a good turn. We had conversations. We were a little bit, you know, Lucy on, on Charlie Brown. We were their psychiatrist. We would talk to them about mm -hmm. some of the issues. You know, we did work for them last year. So how does how is that work going to help you going forward? Or what else do you need to think about? But then it turned to reinvent. And I think people have come to this idea that, you know, what I did doesn't count anymore. It doesn't work anymore. And to some people, they're mature enough to say, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. I don't have to be connected to it as much. But we all have the luxury or the curse, depending on your attitude at the time, of it's time to reinvent. The thing that we have the most of in the world, Dave, is information online. The thing that we have the least of is shared context so that we can all realize that we're rowing in the same direction. I'm really, ex I'm going to go a little bit off to the side here for a second, but I'm really excited about some of the work that the Gates Foundation is doing to help everybody understand the situation we're in with regard to climate change, because we're all on the same planet. If we have one view about that, it's easier to look at the right dashboards, make the best collective decisions and so on. The same thing is happening with pandemic response. We've had that same ability when it comes to transportation crashes. You know, the transportation authorities around the world have an open sharing system. You know, enemies, friends, everybody shares their data on crashes and what goes wrong. That's the area that we need to reinvent. A lot of our systems right now at the company level, at the regional level, geog geographically, and at the national level politically, they're just not set up to handle the size of problems that we have. But we have an abundance of really smart people wonderful tools, amazing tech. We have more than everything, more of everything that we need to solve the problems. And every day I'm meeting more people that are starting to realize, hey, it's reinvent time. This is really cool. I wonder what I can do. So it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating time right now. And I'm very excited about it, not just for me, but for everybody. You know, uh, I, I appreciate that, and I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up, and I'm I'm curious about your um, your thoughts on on this. You know, when we so uh, I'm I'm old enough to remember uh, you know the the dot com bubble bursting. Uh, you know, I I led a, a a good sized team in New York City on 9/11, and you know had the experience of everything that went along with that. 
I started my business and ended up, you know, growing my business during 2008-2009 when, mm-hmm. you know, when, when that situation was, was erupting. And one of the things that strikes me about all of those time periods was exactly what you said. It was a time of reinvention. It was a time of innovation. And it was a, it was a time of, uh, of optimism and growth e- even in the darkness. But all of those time periods had one thing that I think is missing here. Uh, and maybe you see something different than I'm seeing. Or if you see the same thing, maybe we can figure out how to get through it together. And that's courage. There were in each of those time periods, there was a model of courage. There was a person or people who stood up and said, we will help you get through this or I will help you get through this. Uh, the example I'll give you is, uh, you know, being uh, being in New York City after 9-11 and, um, you know, not agreeing with his politics, but seeing George Bush stand on the rubble at ground zero and say we are going to get through this was a tremendously inspiring moment for everyone as a nation days later seeing him walk to the mound with a flak jacket on in yankee stadium and throw out the first pitch in the world series was an incredibly inspiring moment regardless of political ideology at the time the man had courage and he was able to get up in front of the public and lead from the standpoint of saying, look, yeah. I, I understand my role, I grasp it, and I'm going to help us get through this. This is, in my opinion, this is missing right now. And we, as a, as a business community, all of us, we need to be the ones to stand up and say, and, and, I, and I guess to some extent you're seeing it with businesses in some places issuing mask mandates when mm-hmm. you know politicians mm-hmm. won't. Um, but where is the courage in this? In, in I'm going to agree and disagree with you on that one, Dave. Okay. The place where I disagree is that I don't think we've had enough people in elected leadership positions acting as leaders. Oh, I completely agree. Right? Uh, and during this crisis, 100%. 100%. But we have had millions of nurses and teachers and firefighters and people like you and me and some of the neighbors that I have right here in Marietta, Georgia deciding that they're going to lead and they're going to help. And that's Mm. actually the way the world works. It's no longer 500 or 5,000 people run the world. It's 500 million people run the world. Where I think that courage comes from is something that I just realized just in the last year as I've become a a little bit um, politically awoke, if that's the right way to say it. I've I've Mm. learned some things based on all the the, the craziness that we've gone through because I've focused on it and I've listened to new voices. Let me see if I can remember my train of thought here. Okay, when Bush walked out onto that pound of that mile, the pile of rubble. Right. Who was he talking to? Himself, his family, his constituents? No, he was talking to all of us. Right. All of America. When Neil Armstrong put his foot down on the moon for the first time and said, "A small step for man, a giant leap for mankind," they were. He was bequeathing that experience to everybody else. And the video that I saw from that 1964 time frame in July was people from all over the world glued to their television sets, uh, looking at it, looking at them through, you know, windows in retail stores in South America, in tents in the middle of China, um, in skyscrapers in New York. Everyone was glued. And people that I've met all over the world think that they went to the moon. Okay, mm-hmm. so here's the point. 
the really good leaders is all of us. When you come to the realization that we is more important than me, that's when you get the courage. When you start to see the world from that broader perspective and know that you're a part of it and that if you don't help the whole thing work, your part's not going to work. It's not about taking more from the other guy, having a bigger slice of pie. It's about making sure that everybody's got some pie. And I'm not trying to make a political statement here. It's just that yeah. we're all in this together. So the courage, in my opinion, comes from when that moment when people realize that we is greater than me and they throw themselves up to serve as an example, backed by their actions and some communication to do that. And we need 500 million people doing that. Yeah, no, no, I, I completely agree. Uh, I think uh, maybe maybe it was inartfully put, but I think there's the courage to step out and, and allow people to rally around you or your words. And it has, you know, there I, I agree with you about the first responders and the mm -hmm. people on the front lines. I mean, I mean, grocery clerks, look at look at people who are who are going into the grocery store every yeah. day and making sure that there's food on the shelves for us to eat, exposing themselves to the virus. That's great. But I think the one thing that's missing that could really pull all those folks together, and it doesn't have to be a political leader. I mean, where's the Lech Walesa of the of this time? The the common average person who rises up and everybody rallies around. I think people are hungry for that. I think they're. I think they're. I think people are dying to find that one rallying cry that they can share with each other where you know that that will bring everyone together i i just you know yeah, i i think yeah. we've done a really we've done a really good job of nuancing our political messaging so that it hits the target when it comes to pushing those partisan buttons i think now it's time to take those skills and use them for the purposes of bringing people together versus uh versus being being more divisive. I mean, maybe that's just me being on my being on my soapbox, but that's I don't think we heal from this. You can put a vaccine in everyone's arm. I don't think we heal from this until we all realize that whether you're a Republican or a Republican or a Democrat, whether you live in the north or the south, whether you're black or you're white, you have kids and you want to make sure your kids are protected from the virus or you know you have a family and you want your family to fulfill their potential until we all realize that that's the goal of everybody puts their head on the pillow with that goal in mind right nobody nobody goes out and says hey listen you know i i want to i don't really care if three people in my family die from the virus as long as i make some more money tomorrow no your primary concern is that everybody is okay you feel like that whether you're black or you're white you're a republican or you're a democrat so um, you know, that's that's a message that's I think that's lacking and it, it deserves a bigger audience and there should be somebody out there. Um, I can do it in my in my sphere of influence and and I am and that's great. But until in, until we have somebody standing in front of us repeating that to the point where they're willing to just like your point about and the, the point that we've been making throughout this interview about somebody willing to put their career on the line and, and risk it all. For the purposes of innovation, you know, until somebody's willing to put their career on the line and risk saying what needs to be said, um, you know, that that's what people rally around. And that's what that's what courage is all about. All right. So you don't have to you don't have to ask uh, Mike a political question, but here's what I want you to do now. I want you to go to uh, storyminers.com. Why? Y-A-M-A. Storyminers.com. You ask, Mike answers. Yama. Storyminers is spelled S-T-O-R-Y-M-I-N-E-R-S.com. 
forward slash Y-A-M-A. Ask Mike a question. He's going to answer. I hope you enjoyed this time we spent together. Mike, it was it was a pleasure having you with us. Thanks for thanks for joining me here today. Wonderful. And thank you so much. I had no idea what kind of conversation to expect. Stimulating, on point, insightful. Thank you so much. Oh, you're, you're too kind. So, folks, I want you to go ask Mike a question. And... Uh, I'm going to pop in there from time to time and see what, what questions there are and be curious about the answers. This is the Inside BS show after all. So if you want to get inside the BS of business strategy and how the the power of a story and crafting a story can influence business strategy and influence the growth of your organization, go check out Mike and, and see what Mike can do to help you craft your strategy and then execute the strategy. This is the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo. We're here every day with another insider business secret for you. We share the Inside BS on everything that's bogging you down and help you get through it. Join us back here tomorrow for another edition of the show. Until then, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.